Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Rupal Patel, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tej. It's great to be here. No problem at all. You know, I first came across you in YPN magazine, which I which I do love reading. Um, and actually, you're going to be a regular writer in there from March, I believe. So I con- am, yeah, March 2020. Congrats on that. Um, and Thanks. your article was was really interesting because you touched on some some parts of property investment development that, like. I guess I'd call it the realistic part, you know, the, <laughs> the, the challenges, the blood, sweat and tears, you know, you were, you would, you didn't hold back. You weren't kind of like, yeah, it'll be great. And it's a dream world with unicorns and flowers. You were just like, it is yeah. very hard, um, yeah. which, you know, which is the truth. And I really, really like that. And I, you know, I really want you to come on the podcast and, you know, share with us practical tips, but also share with us like the reality of property investment, because, you know, yeah. People listening, especially those who are new, need to know how difficult it is, but of course, yep. the positive results that come from it. So yeah, yeah. For, for people who maybe don't know your story, what were you doing pre-property and what led you to property? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, so pre-property, I actually had a, um, a career in foreign intelligence and I had a really amazing career where I got to travel the world, do cool things, see cool things, be involved in some pretty high level decision decision making uh, as far as U.S. foreign policy was concerned and just had a, yeah, met some amazing people and had a fantastic uh, experience. And then what happened, sort of the, the I guess, non-traditional transition into property came about because while I was still working in my, my former career, I was living in London for um, for about a year, and that's when I met who is my now husband slash business partner slash co-founder of our property business. And you know, as as the stereotype goes, I sort of fell in love with his English charm, and uh, and we were we were trying to figure out a way to to well to basically sort of have decide what to do next in our careers because I was still living in the states and you know had a career there, and he was obviously here. Uh, so long story short, fast forward. Um, you know, a couple of years later, we were still together getting sick of the of the long distance flights and expense of back and forth. And uh, we decided that um, I had just finished business school and uh, we were trying to decide, OK, well, you know, what makes the most sense moving forward for our combined futures and our career futures and financial future? And I knew having left business school that I did not want to go back for working for another large bureaucratic organization because whether it was for the, you know, the a government entity or for a corporate entity, the problems, the politics, all of that stuff I didn't like was going to follow me whether I was at a big, you know, corporate firm or, or you know, in the government. And so anyway, long story short, we, we sort of agreed and talked throughout those two years that I was in business school about me starting a business and what that business would be. And after a lot of analysis and, and discussion and sort of, uh, you know, dipping our toes in, in various things, we decided that actually it would be property. And for the main reasons being, first and foremost, for both of us, it was the tangibility of it. So we both came from very cerebral sort of knowledge economy based businesses or, or careers. And, you know, there was the, the case of where you just you do a presentation or you do a report or an analysis and then you never actually see the tangible result of it. And so property appealed for that reason. Secondly, um, for our creativity, we both have, you know, quite a lot of uh, creativity that we wanted that wasn't getting used and we wanted to put to good use. And again, with property, you can really transform places or neighborhoods by being a bit more thoughtful and creative about what you do and how you do it. And then lastly, for the legacy and for the value um, that we can add to what we were doing. So <clears throat> legacy, not just for, you know, our family and whoever comes uh, comes after us in our business, but legacy for the neighborhoods in which we invest and, and genuinely improving and transforming them from something that was perhaps not 
super nice to begin with, and then making a really lovely home for someone um, at the end result. And, you know, our, our business tagline is inspirational and aspirational homes. And that really is what, what we strive for. And our, <clears throat> excuse me, our criteria is that if we will not be happy, would not be happy to live in a property ourselves, we will not rent it. We will not sell it on its, you know, our standards are quite high. And we think it's really important to provide, you know, nice house homes for people. Um, so that was sort of how we decided on property. And that was back in 2012 when we first got started. Wow. So from a spy to property investor. <laughs> <laughs> Another way a friend put it was from foreign policy to planning policy. But yeah, yeah your, yours sounds a little bit sexier. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I'll be careful about what I say about America then. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so you sort of started a, a business from, you know, I guess similar reasons to most people. Um, you know, sort of not necessarily enjoying a job because of the bureaucracy and wanting, you know, all the things you mentioned. How did mm. you like practically be like, okay, uh, you know, f- you know, finish business school, finish the job. Uh, mm. Let me just start a business. Did you educate? <laughs> did you jump in? Like, what was that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, to be honest, every, you know, the, the <clears throat> I often say this when I, I mentor other founders, it's like the beginning stages, the first few years and all sort of the year zero, even when it's still just an idea in your head, all of that stuff, actually that laying that foundation is so, so key to do it slowly and carefully. So as part of our, our foundation, no pun intended, uh, what we did is exactly what you said. We just really, for the first, I would say year to 18 months, we were like knowledge consumers, Hoovers, whatever analogy you want to use. I mean, we, you know, we read tons of books. We read YPN magazine, which I still think is probably the best magazine out there for property investors in the UK. Um, We went to lots of different networking meetings and events for property investors, talked to other people who were doing it because the thing is with property is that yes, you you know, that it's very, the potential returns and the profit, et cetera, can be great, but so can the potential for disaster. And, you know, with such high entry costs, I mean, buying a property is not cheap. We wanted to make sure that to the extent possible, we were as knowledgeable about it before we sort of took the plunge. And then I think that's the key is sort of making sure that you find the right balance for you between having enough information and then actually going and trying to use it. So I would say for the first, as I said, sort of year to 18 months, we were in sort of knowledge input mode um, and just, you know, taking in as much as we possibly could. And then we started small because we knew, again, if we wanted to do something we had never done before, it makes sense to start small so that the mistakes are therefore less uh, punishing and the potential for loss is also a bit less, uh, a bit smaller. And so our first investment, um, the one, you know, the article that you refer to, that first investment was just a small little two bedroom terrace property in, in the new town of Reading. Uh, and we bought it for 140, 142,000 pounds. Um, and that was, you know, that was the test case to just start implementing a lot of the things that we had learned. So, I mean, firstly, 142K in Reading, it must have been a while ago because, yeah, that, that it was, sounds... Yeah, it was seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that is a bargain. Not going to happen now. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, so did you, because a lot of people ask me, Ted, should I pay for a course or should I kind of do what you and what I've done as well, which is the slower, but I, I think the more in-depth way of learning, which is you know, absorbing it from your network and other sources. Did you pay for an, uh, like a course? We did actually. So we did, again, we did a mix. So for the first year, I would say sort of 2012 was when we bought that property in the run up to that sort of the year prior, we were just sort of getting smart, um, uh, you know, sort of offline reading books, etc. And then from 2012 to about 2014, for about another two years, again, it was more just consuming information, knowledge, learning from others, blah, blah, blah. But then in 2014, we both my partner and I both did uh, Simon Zucci's mastermind course. Uh, so we did pay for a course, but it was sort of after we had already armed ourselves with you know as much knowledge as we possibly could um just on our own oh okay and would you say not necessarily that course would you say a course is is vital for people or do you think you can still do it without what do you think about that 
Uh, no, definitely not. I don't think, and you know, it's definitely not vital. I will say what it did for us, and this is, you know, I would, this applies to any course. First and foremost, do your homework. So not all courses, not all trainers, not all mentors are created equal. Make sure you know what you're getting into and that the vibe and the values of that community is something that resonates with you. What resonated with us about um, at least sort of the pin universe was, was it did seem like a very open and generous uh, and sharing environment. But regardless of pin or any others, I mean, I think it's not essential. Would we have been successful without it? A hundred percent. Yes. I think what it did for us is that it just sort of short, uh, short circuited or fast forwarded, you know, the, the time between when we really were getting stuck in to when we were starting to see measurable results that, you know, and, and starting to move, make big progress towards the, the bigger goals that we had set for ourselves. Because whether, you know, whether it's a community you pay for or a community you create for yourself, I am a firm believer in that, you know, we rise or fall to the, um, to the level of the people we surround ourselves with. And I think, again, whether you construct it for yourself or pay for it, it's, you know, the environment can make a huge difference. So again, just choose carefully, but no, if, you know, by no means do you have to do it. It just, in our case anyway, it did help accelerate it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then, so looking at your first deal in Reading, you know, was mm. that like, a sort of straightforward buy it and rent it out or did it have a refurb or tell us about the deal yeah so it was um it was it was straight well it was pretty straightforward and vanilla in hindsight at the time it <laughs> felt terrifying uh it was we just bought it and then it didn't need renovation and so we refurbished it ourselves because we were trying to save save money um are and... you builders are you tradespeople, or did you oh. just Goodness, no. We <laughs> just relied on the wisdom of YouTube and Google searches, mm, yeah. <laughs> and then hired the 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 professionals for the you know the plumbing and for the electrician the electrical work. But yeah. all of the other really tedious, soul destroying stuff like stripping <laughs> wallpaper and Ooh. and diluting paint to put miscoats and plastering and all uh. that kind of stuff, we did ourselves. And that was, as I said, you know, through reading books or or watching YouTube videos. Damn. Um, yeah. stripping wallpaper is the least fun Horrible. thing yeah, I can <laughs> I can think to do I mean and like at, you know looking back at that you know was because yeah. obviously nowadays you know and I think the general thought process is never do refurb yourself give it all yeah. to you know outsource it focus your time on things that will generate income but looking mm. back at it do you kind of regret it or did it was it like a baptism by fire yeah, I don't regret it at all. It definitely was a baptism by fire, but also in the beginning stages, it's you you have to count the pennies and sometimes you have to trade your time because you don't have the money to pay somebody else to do it. And so, you know, in that instance, we you know, if we were paying ourselves for the work we were doing, it would have, you know, it would have been a ridiculous um uh cost. But we actually had to do it because we were trying to save money and, and you know, we had to sort of trade our time to, quote unquote, do the low value stuff because we just didn't have the luxury of being able to pay somebody else to do it ourselves. Um, I would I, what I would say my caveat to that to sort of that statement is, yes, 100 percent, you know, outsource, delegate to the specialist, to the experts, et cetera. But my little addition to that would be as soon as it is commercially viable so you don't necessarily or we didn't necessarily want to be you know overloading ourselves with with costs or expenses when we didn't have any income coming in so in that instance we 100 you know made a conscious choice to do the refurbishment ourselves because it was going to save some money yes it, it extended the time period that it took to actually get the work done but yeah so the you know the benefit of having done it ourselves just meant that when uh, in future projects we brought in professionals and other tradesmen to do the work we were better qualified to assess their work and see you know are they taking too long is it going too quickly is this the right quality are they using the right materials all of that kind of stuff I mean we're never going to be as good as the professionals but we now are at least from some experience we were you know we're pretty good at being able to judge the work of others yeah and that first deal that you bought were like you know were you sort of buying it below market value refurbing it and then refinancing it or was it just a buy leave in money and then carry yeah. on uh, it was a mix, actually, because, you know, as you might know um, about the Reading market, or at least the South in general, it's it's still pretty high value. So you 
it's rare. It's not impossible, but it is rare to have no money left in deals. And even in projects where we've pulled added value and pulled a lot of uh, value, a lot of money out, we've still had to leave some in. So in this instance, we bought it slightly below market. I think we got, I think it was on the market at 150 or something like that. Or, and we bought it for 142. So not a massive discount, but still it, it all adds up. Um, and then we added value by doing a pretty good uh, thorough refurb on it. And I can't remember off the top of my head what the revaluation was, but basically, you know, it valued up in, I think, two years time uh, higher than what we, sorry, six months time um, higher than what we had uh, paid for it. So we were able to pull some of the equity out of that from that, but we definitely did have to leave some money into, into it at, in that first uh, refinance or nice. the, that first, sorry, um, uh, further advance. Yeah. So, you know, and whilst you were doing this, you were both full time in the property business? So I so this first project was in 2012. I was finishing up my last year of business school. So that was I was doing that full time. My husband or now husband was working full time in his day job. So we both had other full time pulls uh, on our time and attention. Wow. And then you yeah. know, once you, you finished this project, it obviously didn't yep. put you off property. Um, no. <laughs> you know, how did you then go, right, we've got one property, you know, we did yeah. a refurb ourselves, it valued up well to like yeah. kind of being like, cool, let's actually now do property and make it into a property business. Mm. Yeah, I think it was a, a couple of things. So first, you know, that experience, as you rightly said, it didn't scare us off or turn us off. And we proved the concept that, you know, in theory, it does work. Obviously, there are bumps along the way, but it does work. Uh, so what we then spent the next couple of years doing was really just getting smart. Okay, well, obviously, this works, but for cash flow purposes, because, you know, we wanted my, our property business, our, our immediate goal um, was to replace my post, what would have been my post business school income, because I was after graduating going to do the business full time, and then over time to replace my husband's income. So cash flow was our, our first big target. And we clearly knew it would work by doing single lets as we had done with this first project, but we thought, well, gosh, well, if we do it this way, it's going to take us forever. So are there other more profitable, higher cash flow strategies out there that we can start looking into? And as you know, the, as you probably know, you know, HMOs made sense for lots of big and small reasons. So what we did in that entering intervening time between 2012, when we bought that first property to 2014, which is when we brought our next, was again getting smart about HMOs. What does it mean? How does it work? How do you do them? What are the regulations? All of that kind of stuff. We were still sort of passively in the background looking for single let opportunities, but we just thought more and more that, gosh, for not too much more money than what you would pay for a single let, you could get a house that's a little bit bigger and therefore could be used as an HMO and get that much more profit from it. So we started to refocus our efforts on looking for HMOs. Hmm. And I'm hearing again that you took, you know, quite a bit of time to then educate learn and understand mm. what you're doing and you know what yeah. i think for a lot of people listening it's easy to listen to you say that but like mm. it's i think a lot of people find it difficult to spend that yeah. time doing that because it's like oh it's I, you know i can do one i can do one course on the weekend and then that's it boom i'll be financially free <laughs> in like a month and i think it's yeah. it's important you, you you mention that and that people really need yeah. to listen to that because yeah, yeah. It, it does take time right so you it thought does. HMOs, which is, you know, I think a natural progression for most people, mm. um, yep. you know, so you, you were based in London at the time or were you based in Reading? We were living in Winnersh, which is a suburb of a suburb. So it's like a tiny little town just outside of Reading. And um, yeah, we, that's where we had moved to after I graduated from business school. My husband's job was not too far from there. So that's how we decided on, on Winnersh and that's where we were. Okay, so then, you know, mm. you're based in a fairly expensive area, you know, for people who maybe don't sure. know, like West and sort of greater West London and Reading, it is expensive. So yeah. with HMOs, yeah. how did you then decide which area to focus on? Or was it the same? Well, yeah, we decided, I mean, we made a very conscious choice in the beginning that we wanted to invest locally. And you know, again, this comes up a lot, especially with newer investors. It's like, oh, should I invest in my patch, but it's really expensive? Or should I invest further afield where it's a little bit more affordable? It's such a personal choice. And for us, we knew we wanted to be hands-on. We knew we didn't want to be traveling hours and hours in the car because, you know, to visit our properties because that became, you know, would become a quality of life issue. And at some point we wanted to, you know, to have more more time not less and not spending it all in the car 
far. And so we decided that, you know, we would do invest locally. So that meant for us in Reading. And, and because it was Reading, we, by virtue of deciding that the location was the key criteria for us, we had to be a little bit open-minded about the way we invest. Because again, when this comes up with newer, newer investors who I speak to, I say, look, if you're firm on a location, then you can't be dogmatic about how you invest there because it might not work in that location. On the flip side, if you're firm on a way of investing, you know, if you know you definitely want to do single lists or you definitely want to do flips or you definitely want to do HMOs, then you have to be a little bit agnostic about where you do it because you have to go where that that type of investing makes the most sense. So for us, you know, the location was the main priority. And so we had to be a little bit flexible and open to how we would invest. As I said, you know, we'd started with a single up, but then wanted to do HMOs. And it worked out that luckily, you know, doing professional HMOs was a profitable investment strategy in our area. So we focused on looking for properties that could be converted into professional HMOs, um, you know, in our area, which is sort of Reading, you know, sort of Reading Center, uh, which was effectively a 30, 20 to 30 minute drive from where we lived. And so, of course, so as you said, you know, you, your strategy or your, your way of working was dictated by the location. Now, if mm. someone is prior to that stage, but they know they want to do HMOs, because mm. I often sort of ask people this question, like, how can, you know, how could you advise the listeners that they could yeah. identify areas in which a HMO could work? If they have if they have the whole of the UK in front of them (laughs) and, you know, like what kind of factor should they look at to be like, cool, HMOs work here and here. I get that question all the time, too. And actually, just a very shameless, uh, quick, shameless plug. I've got we've got a YouTube channel. So it's just YouTube.com at uh, backslash Blue Infinity Property. And I've literally made videos about this because this comes up again and again and again. So if you guys want additional, more in-depth answers, please feel free to go there. But the question and dirty sort of high level bullet point answer to that question is where do HMOs work? Well, first and foremost, you know, generally it would be in an an area that has lots of strong employment. So again, in the Thames Valley area where we invest, there's lots of IT firms, there's lots of other big corporate firms who have their headquarters here. So that sort of takes that box. Alternative, if you're looking for doing student HMOs, then Obviously, anywhere that has a university um, would be a good place to at least start your analysis on. But you want to think about it from the point of view of the target, the the end tenant and the target tenant type that you want to work with. because if you've decided on HMOs, then you next need to decide, okay, who is your target tenant type? Well, do you want to work with students? Do you want to work with blue-collar workers, with white-collar workers? Who is it? And then based, again, on that target tenant type, if you've got the whole of the UK open to you, and let's say, for example, you decide, I want to do HMOs for students, then the next step would be, okay, well, where is it likely? where are there likely to be high populations of students? Obviously, university towns. So, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, Exeter, Liverpool, um, you know, Manchester, the big cities, but then also, you know, places like Coventry and other sort of quote unquote secondary cities have universities and or big learning institutions nearby. So that, you know, is another way to look at it. And then once you've decided, okay, well, this particular town or this particular city is good for my target tenant type, the next sort of process is, okay, well, where specifically, because obviously, you know, Liverpool, Leeds, Manchester, whatever, these are big places. So again, where does your target tenant population want to live? If you're going after students, then it would want probably be within walking distance. So about a mile of the main university campus. So then you can draw your radius around the the main university campus and say, okay, right move Zoopla, show me all of the properties within a one mile radius of X. And then, you know, see what properties come up. And then it's just a question of looking at, okay, well, these are the properties that are coming up or any of them going to be big enough for, you know, at, at this moment to be converted into an HMO? No. And then, you know, you sort of sil- uh, sift through the results in that way. But the other key that is also so, so crucial for people to to investigate, again, this is just specific to HMOs, um, is what are the the local requirements? Because now, you know, there are national standards for HMO licensing, but then some local councils will also have their own specific requirements. So again, when looking at a property, you need to make sure that that specific property is going to tick all of the right boxes 
for the local and national requirements for turning it into an HMO. So, you know, there's lot, there's sort of this top-down process that it just sort of whittles down the universe of possibilities. Um, but that's sort of the most logical way that I've, I've come up with of doing it. And then it's just a numbers game of, you know, viewing properties that are in the right location, that are the right size, that are, you know, within walking distance to the right amenities for your target tenant type. And then, you know, just being diligent about looking at them, talking to agents and, and literally pounding the pavement to do the viewings uh, of the properties that that fit the right criteria. Hmm. Okay. Top tips. And, yeah. you know, then going back to sort of you investing in Reading, obviously the prices are, are slightly higher and you obviously yep. need a minimum <clears throat> deposit and refurb yep. and things like that. Yep. When you decided, right, we're doing HMOs locally, what was your funding strategy? How are you mm. going to fund all these purchases? Yeah, well, we knew that we, well, we, we, we first wanted to make sure that we were using our own funds. So we saved, we cashed in some ISAs, we refinanced, um, we pulled some of the, the equity out of our personal home. And then, as I said, that first project, we were able to pull some equity out of that. So, you know, we had a bit of our own personal quote unquote war chest. Um, and so we did the first two and a half projects ourselves with our own funds. And then we started working with private investors. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, private investors, it sounds so sexy and so like, and sophisticated. It, in this instance, our transition to private, working with private investors was literally my friends and family. And it was a question of, okay, well, look, we've got these two and a half um, properties or two, well, you know, we had the single let and then the two um, HMO projects under our belt. Here are the case studies. Here's what we've done. Here's Here are the financial figures. Here's the performance track record. Here are all of the details, P Mr. or Mrs. Potential Investor are you interested? And here's what we can offer you. Um, and I mean, we kept it really simple, but we treated even when it was talking to family and friends, we kept it very, very professional as well. You know, we created investor packs and we created um, presentations and, you know, some wanted to see it, some didn't. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we wouldn't have felt comfortable asking other people for money if we hadn't had at least a bit of a track record to prove that we could do it. Because, you know, people are, want to know that you actually are capable of doing what you're promising. And if you're, you're looking for money on your first investment, it's a little bit risky for the investor because you've never done it before. So that was the way we approached it. Hmm. Okay. And then those first two HMO projects you mentioned, they were funded mm. with your own money, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I say sort of uh, to, to two, well, one and a half, because we bought the first one uh, with our own money and did the refurb with our own money. Uh, the second one we bought with our own money. And then the refurb, part of the refurb money came from a private investor. Okay. And, you know, you said, you know, private investors, that transition was your family and friends. Like for mm -hmm. people listening, you know, I guess two questions. One, yeah. if they haven't got any projects, you know, is it possible to find private investors sort of mm. in the world yeah and then i guess sort of part of that is like should they somehow try and do a first project at least before seeking investment from the world i yeah i would say i mean that yes to your second question which is try to do at least one on your own without seeking investment um, from other people again it's a totally personal preference but you know changing my hat and putting on my potential investor hat. If someone came to me and said, Hey, I'm totally green. I've never done this before, but Hey, could you give me six figure, you know, or whatever, you know, large amount of money, uh, so I can get it done. I would say, uh, well, you know, it sounds a little bit too risky for me. So either the risk there is that the investor either says no, and then, you know, you have to keep looking or they might want a really, really, really big security or a really high interest return, which might not make it viable just because again, it is riskier for them. So they need some way to mitigate that risk. So, you know, I think the thing is, is that everybody is in such a rush to be an investor and to, to have this portfolio and to, uh, you know, have these big accolades. And, different people approach things differently. So I can only speak from the way we did it and our approach to things and our philosophy on things. But genuinely, the way we viewed it was like, in order to be investable, in order for us to have any credibility, we have to have at least a few under our belt. And we need to save that money and come up with that money on our own. So if it takes us five years to save it up or two years to save it up or 10 years, that was our decision-making process. And again, it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not easy. But if you if that's the way you got to do it, then you have to be willing to wait however long it takes for you to come up with the the, the initial deposit or whatever it is for your first project, um, because again it will then just make you that much more credible and investable in the future. And 
and and I think that's again, like I said, that was the way we approached it. It doesn't mean that's how everyone does it. And I know others who have been able to joint venture with other people on you know their early projects. But for us, we just figured, yeah, to be credible and to be, and also for us to feel confident when we go out because you know it's a big responsibility investing with anybody's money, your own as much as somebody else's. And so you know, if we're totally green and didn't know what we were doing, we wouldn't have felt like we were ready to take other people's money because it's, you know, what uh, we wouldn't have proved to ourselves that we could do it responsibly and manage it responsibly. And so we wanted to make sure we could prove it both to ourselves and to others that we knew what we were doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that actually makes sense. Now, I think, you know, that's a dose of realism, right? Which, like you said, it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not no. what people want to hear, but it's yeah. what we need to hear. Um, yeah. So, you know, when you, I think a lot of people in property don't necessarily want their property to be like a business with staff and offices and stuff. They kind of <laughs> yeah. want, you know, a portfolio. Um, yeah. However, a portfolio is still, I guess, technically a business. Now, yeah. you know, from your perspective, like how important and what kind of things did you do to ensure that mm. like your property business was actually a business from day one? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a good amount, to be honest, because as you said, like, even regardless of the, whether it's in a limited company structure or a sole trader, that's irrelevant. As you said, once you've got a few properties, or even just one, you have to treat it as a business in every way possible. So first and foremost, what we uh, started doing from the very get go, even when we had no properties, was at the beginning of every year, my partner and I would have an annual general meeting in AGM. And we would sit down and say, Okay, well, here are our targets for the year ahead. This is what you know, the resources we have to work with this is our plan these are our goals and then after that we would have a six-month check-in to say okay well <clears throat> you know half the year has passed how are we performing is there anything that we need to tweak anything that isn't working that we need to change and all of this stuff because the foundation you set in place now is literally and figuratively the foundation for your business growth. So it's so much easier when there is no business, when there is zero properties to put all of the right processes, the right, you know, systems, whatever you want to call it in place, instead of waiting until you've got this huge business or even a small business of five, six, 10 properties, whatever it is, and have to retroactively go and, and then try to businessize it. So that was one big thing that we did. And then secondly, really is, is something that at every stage of the business, I think is so, so key and so important is to be diligently and militantly on top of the figures. How much money are you making? What are the monthly costs? What are the monthly expenses? What, you know, what interest payments are coming due if you're working with external investors? Whereas, you know, monitoring the cash flow literally on a month by month basis is an invaluable, but also essential skill because you've probably know it yourself. I mean, money can literally pour out as quickly and sometimes faster <laughs> as it pours in. And yep. so, you know, it's property, it's, it's an expensive business and we really need to keep on top of it and make sure we're not just taking for granted. Oh yeah, well the rent came in, so we should be covered. Well, okay, fine. Yes, the rent came in, but you know, did the rent also come with a huge new boiler bill or lots of little small maintenance costs or all of these other things, you know? And so, you know, again, from the beginning, every month, um, you know, we sit down and review the, the profit and loss statement. And in the beginning it was just us doing it. So it was quite a tedious process and, you know, having to go back and look at receipts and putting it all in its in Excel, et cetera. And then over time, you know, once again, the business could afford it, we then paid a bookkeeper and an accountant to do it all for us. But still, even when the bookkeepers are doing it every month, we review the P and L because, we want to make sure that it's all accurately reflected and we know where the money's going. Yeah. And that's important. I mean, I, I'm guilty of not doing it from the beginning. I was like, oh, yeah, let me just buy some houses first. And then I was like, oh, crap. This is, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of stimuli for one brain. Um, <laughs> yep. What is going on? So I, I definitely agree that from the beginning, as annoying and as unnecessary as it may seem, like yeah, it's yeah. so important because six months later, you'll be like, we good cool yeah you know, exactly. like i did what i i should have done from the beginning so you know what we've kind of talked about so far has been back in 2014 like mm -hmm. where and obviously now where well this will be released in 2020 so yeah, yeah um like how how have how has your portfolio changed from you know yeah. 2014 to now what's the growth been like um, it has been very, well, the way we view it is sort of very logical in its progression to more sophisticated and more complicated and bigger projects. So we, you know, we started with a single let, then we moved to HMOs. 
then we moved to doing conversion projects where we would take big apartment, uh, big houses, sorry, and convert them into self-contained apartments. And now our main focus is on doing new builds and developments. So, you know, we're working with landowners and, you know, on projects where we would demolish existing buildings and then put up lots of new apartments or, or, or new houses. Um, and that is our main focus. So for us, that was, that was the trajectory. And it, it was, the part of the plan because you know we knew that okay well we'll start with one thing get really good at it and then push ourselves and challenge ourselves with something new then get really good at that and then push ourselves and try something new and get good at that and so that was sort of the way we we had planned it but it also the key for us was that it kept things interesting as well because as I said earlier my partner and I are both very creative in different ways but both very creative beings and you know after the I don't know, eighth, fifth, whatever HMO, it just sort of started to get a bit boring. So we're like, okay, well, we know what we're doing here. We could effectively, you know, with, with some um, degree of, of uh, you know, just do this in our sleep. Um, so let's then do conversions. And then we did a few of those and we're like, okay, we understand what this is all about. Let's move to the next level. Um, so as I said, yeah, now it's, we've got this rental portfolio of properties that we just, uh, you know, that is our cash flow, that is our income that's enabled now as of last year as, or at 28, we were able to retire my husband as well. So we're now both full time working for ourselves. Um, and that cash flow income comes from, you know, our, our conversion projects, our rental, uh, sorry, our HMOs and our single lets. And then our future and our main focus moving forward is on new bills and developments. Well, congratulations to your husband for leaving his job. Thank firstly. you. Yeah, it was um, really good. I like to say that I retired him, so yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I like that. We're going to go with that. So yeah. it's interesting because a lot of people want to do what you're doing now, the land development mm. stuff, four mm. years ago. And yeah. you can, of course you can. But what you kind of touched on there was that you've built a, let's call it a vanilla portfolio yeah. compared to land anyway, where like stuff's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. That is paying you cash flow because obviously these land mm. builds can take 6 12 18 24 months etc who's yeah. paying the bills in that time right and it's like exactly. you've you've kind of done the hard graft of building mm. this you know portfolio to cover so for people yeah. listening you don't have to do that maybe you just have a couple of rent to rent and then you whatever yeah. but yeah. think about it like rupal has in that look you need something to cover your life while you're waiting yeah. for stuff to be built i'm really interested in your um, conversions because mm. that's something I'm looking to do next year now oh cool if if I well when I and also people listening mm. done by to let's you know all that kind of stuff now we want to look yeah. at you know getting a big house or a big unit and making it into mm. self-contained flats teach me mm. what, what do I need to do what do I need to look out for like g give me the mechanics of how I can do this <laughs> Yeah, so that's a, a really good question. Um, there are so many things uh, that go into converting, you know, bigger bigger houses or bigger units into flats. But I'll give you some of the high level stuff that I think really, 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 uh, especially in the beginning, we're either glad that we did or lessons that we learned uh, the hard way. So. The first thing is to take as much time as you possibly can on doing your appraisal. What we found was that actually in the end, doing a conversion in some ways is a lot more expensive than if we had done a new build. Um, and to some extent, that's because with an existing structure, you don't always know what you're getting until you started doing the work. So in um, a couple of instances, while we were going through the uh, conversion process, we found that, oh, uh, the structure that we were converting didn't really have foundations. It had really shallow foundations that were about six inches, which obviously isn't going to withstand the test of time. So we had to go and underpin everything. Um, in another instance, uh, we found that the front wall, the external front wall was literally made of sand and basically like leftover materials, you know, with Victorian buildings in particular, which a lot of the housing stock is in the UK, you, it's amazing. They're beautiful in a lot of ways, but you know, some crazy things happen where leftover materials get used. Or in this instance, the uh, area that we were developing in used to be uh, the sort of factory town area for a major factory in the area. And so there was a qualitative difference between the houses that were built for say the managers and the directors to what was built for the workers and that factory. So again, with conversions, you don't really know what you're going to get until you start digging into the ground and, and, you know, sort of going through plaster. So 
with the appraisal side of thing, clearly you can't always predict what those unpredictable things are going to be. Otherwise, they wouldn't be unpredictable. Um, but to always allow for a contingency, both with time and with cost, uh, we sort of budget. There are different rules of thumb. Some people say 10%. Some people say 20 uh, so, you know, it's whatever you, whatever sits well with you. And, you know, over time and experience, your numbers can be further refined. But I would say at the bare minimum, comfortably for your first conversion, you want to be budgeting about 20% of the total build cost for uh, for con unexpected contingencies. And then obviously, if it works out better, great. You know, you're pleasantly surprised. But then at least if things do go a little bit amiss, you've got a bit of a fallback plan. Um, so when you're doing your numbers, when you're doing your appraisals, make sure you're always allowing like I said, a bit of a contingency for construction and definitely thing, uh, contingencies for time. And the time becomes a bit of an issue because of the next thing that I think is worth highlighting, which is the financing costs. So financing for conversions can be notoriously expensive because you can't just go to a high street lender or to you know a traditional mortgage lender and say, hey, I'm going to completely gut this property and totally devalue the, your asset while I'm putting in these new units. Um, it, they just don't do that. So you need to go with specialist lenders, sometimes bridging lenders or commercial lenders. And because it is considered a specialist product, you're paying for a special a premium for that service. So comfortably you can expect to pay anywhere between you know 0.75 to 1.5 percent per month and when you have to pay those costs you know that that sort of high interest rates for not just the acquisition of the per, the property but then also the construction costs every single day really really matters we like i said learned that the hard way first uh, in our first conversion where the uh, underwriting process took literally six months. So from when they said, when we've submitted our application to when we had funds in place to actually do the build, we had, it was a six month gap. And clearly we don't have six months where that property can just be sitting empty. Our builders would have moved on to something else. There's other things going on, um, financing costs, holding costs, you know, council tax, all of that kind of stuff. It starts to add up. Thankfully, we'd had savings that we could divert from what we were earmarking for another project to this project until that money came in. Um, so we were able to stick generally to the timescale. But, you know, having contingency for funds because lenders can take so much longer than you expect. Uh, again, there's sort of a saying that, you know, um, any any forecast you put out there, you know, plan for double. Some people say triple. So, again, you know, be prepared both financially and sort of time wise for things to take a lot longer. Um, but then the other thing that we did, the, since we did sort of learn from that lesson of how expensive delays can be, in the second conversion that we did, we agreed with our contractor that any time delays that were their fault, uh, they would pay us, I can't remember what it was, but basically like a late finishing fee. So I think maybe it was like a hundred pounds a day or whatever it ended up being, because in the end that project was almost two months late and that's two months of paying our, our commercial lenders, you know, 1% a month, that money is, you know, it starts to really add up. I think in that instance, it worked out to something like 3000 pounds a month. So if we hadn't put that clause in with our contractor, we would have had to pay that, you know, for that delay um, out of our own pocket. So again, there, there are ways that you can sort of uh, cover your downside. Um, and then I guess the final thing to, you know, there are so many others, but this is one of the big ones that I think people uh, would be, or, you know, would be developers and conversion uh, project uh, investors would be well, well placed to know is with utilities, you need to start as soon as possible. So those of you who haven't done conversions before, every new unit needs its own electricity supply, its own gas supply, its own water supply, and dealing with whatever the utility provider is in your area. For us, you know, it's people like Thames Water or SSE or British Gas, whoever it is, that process of creating new supplies, new pipe work, new cabling, new all of that stuff can take months and months and months. So literally get that ball rolling as soon as you have completed on the purchase because you can never have enough time. And then, you know, it does, it can take anywhere from, I don't know, three to six months from when you submit your application to when they've come and done the connection. And again, some of the work on site 
can't be done or completed until the utilities are there. So, you know, or trenches have to be dug or there's very specific criteria you have to follow for each of the different utility providers. So I would say, uh, you know, definitely get that process of, of, you know, that conversation and the application and the specification that you have to provide to the new utility suppliers in as soon as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say those are definitely the, the key lessons that we learned in, in doing conversion projects. Excellent tips. Really, really interesting. And you know, the, the part about utilities is, is funny because I feel like I wait months for them to clear the debt on a meter in a bike yep. let. I feel like yep. I wait months on the phone to them. So yeah, I, exactly. honestly, you know, <laughs> I cannot even imagine the patience you have and people have to wait three yeah. to six months for like, it's just, I don't even want to think about it. It makes me, it makes me annoyed to think about it. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you know, it's not just them that are the, the backlog or that are the bottleneck because they also have to get permits from the council. So there's, you know, you're having to deal with people who then have to deal with other people. So it adds, you know, to the time and, and the frustration. So yeah, definitely. Like you said, if, and there's their customer service on just the utility provision side of things, when you already have an existing uh, utility, there is anything to go on. You definitely want to budget in a lot more time. Yeah, definitely. And what I also picked up from everything you said is that, you know, conversions are, are generally bigger projects than buy to and HMOs. And yep. I think it's easy to like only see the upside of conversions, the figures, mm -hmm. the end value, the sexy pictures. But actually, yep. you know, when I listen to you, I think, wow, there's so much more that you're yeah. doing, like, say, compared to just a buy to let. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, that it's like, I guess it's kind of a nice, um, like a bit of reality for people listening who are saying, oh, you know what, buy to let's are boring, I want to do big stuff. And they say, hey, hold on, do you want to be paying this much interest a month? Do you want to wait, <laughs> yeah. you know, this many months for planning, mate, if you yeah. need it, you know, do you need to wait? And it's, it's just good to go through this so people are like, okay, maybe I don't want to do this stuff. Yeah, um, or at least go in with eyes open, you know, and I think yeah. that's the key is that anything we do for the first time is going to be scary or terrifying or we'll only be able to think of the reasons why we shouldn't or can't or whatever. Um, and, you know, the, the thing is, everything is, is is surmountable, but you have to go prepared to overcome those challenges. You can't go in naively thinking, oh, well, I've done a couple of refurbishments, so a conversion is going to be, you know, a piece of cake. Like, it's just, it's a different beast. And so that's why I do emphasize also just like talking to as many people who have already done it um, and getting advice or paying for mentorship, whatever it is, but to make sure that you go in with eyes open because, yeah, as you said, the, the potential risks are so much greater um, and you can't just jump into it just because it's a flight of fancy. You have to really think through how it's going to go. Hmm. And, you know, one of your first points I think you made kind of got me thinking that actually, you know, when you... So when people listening walk into a, you know, whether it's a big house or like a mm -hmm. kind of, you know, commercial building or something, yep. like what, how, how do you and how can they sort of um, make sure that it will work as a conversion? Do you take like a laser mm -hmm. measure and do a floor plan? Do you just visually, spatially do it? Like, how do you know once you walk in a property, ah, <clears throat> this could be some flats? Yeah, um, it's a mix of a couple of the things that you said. And then also uh, the council will have different requirements. So make sure, again, this is going to be so boring, but you really have to know what is happening in the local council in which you want to invest, whether you're doing single lets or conversions or bigger developments, the council, the local council in your area will have to and does make publicly available all of their standards, their guidelines, their criteria, et cetera. So for example, in Reading, um, they're, their minimum space standard for a property that they will even consider letting, granting plan permission for a conversion into, into flats or smaller units. I think their minimum uh, size was, uh, the pre-existing structure has to be a minimum of 120 square meters. So if you're going to look at a big Victorian terrace, for example, and you're like, oh yeah, I think, you know, this could be chopped up into two, two flats very easily, you know, one on top, one on the ground floor, um, but it's 100 square meters. Well, already that's going to more than likely be thrown out by the council because, you know, again, this is just for Reading, but their minimum standard is 120 square meters. So some of it is really just doing that that desktop research getting really smart about the specifics in your local council area and then also understanding you know do they do they conform to the minimum space standards requirements so those are national guidelines and they are just guidelines but a lot of councils have adopted them um, conversions are often the exception but again your local council might say well you know we definitely want all of the apartments to fit within you know a one bedroom has to be x size and a two bedroom has to be y so 
of the information is out there. You just have to be willing to, to dig for it and, and look for it. So that's the first thing is just make sure that whatever you think you could do, you verify with what is um, legal, you know, sort of doable in your local area. And then some of it is, yeah, what you said, sort of getting floor plans, uh, maybe sort of, you know, again, talking informally to developers who have done something, whether it's, you know, an office to residential conversion or just a residential, a big residential to a smaller residential conversion. Talk to people who have done it before, you know, ask them again to sense check your ideas um, because, <clears throat> Just because you think a certain number of units can fit, again, there are planning considerations, there are space size considerations, there are structural considerations that you need to factor in. So I would say definitely just talk, you know, get the advice from the experts. And so many people want information for free and are just like, oh, well, it's just, you know, I just want to, you know, we'll call up an architect and say, oh, I just want to pick your brain for five minutes. And first of all, it never ends up being five minutes. And second of all, you know, at the end of the day, you, you have to be willing to pay for qualified advice. If it's crucial to the success or failure of your development, of your conversion, you have to be willing, even if it's, you know, a hundred pound retainer fee or, a, you know, consultation fee or whatever it is. Some people, yes, of course, will be happy to, you know, for example, give you the first one free. But if you keep going back again and again and again, at some point, you have to realize that it is taking time away from their paying clients every time they're answering to you. So be a bit respectful of not just the quantity of information you ask for, but also, you know, maybe even asking them, you know, can I pay you something or what do you charge for these kinds of consultations? And some people, you know, in our experience, more often than not, most professional services will give you a general advice to do a very rough sketch, like, you know, an architect will do a rough sketch of what they think could fit in a floor plan for free but you have to be willing to pay at some point. So don't, you know, again, respect their time, respect their qualifications, respect the fact that they are providing you valuable insight. Um, and yeah, I would say it's sort of that mix of doing your own due diligence, doing, you know, going in and digging as deep as you possibly can on your own, and then talking to the experts, whether, you know, it's structural surveyors or contract, um, you know, contractors, architects, other developers, and then, you know, ask them for their advice in insight especially on the first one or even the first few because every time you know you do something new you want to make sure that you again as I said previously you're going in with your eyes wide open about the potential risks the potential downsides and even whether you think that something is developable developable the key person I would say should be your first point of call is probably going to be a planning consultant because they can say okay well you know in this area in this local council these are their restrictions on permitted development, or these are the space standards that they need to adhere to. So just, again, generally speaking, these are some of the hurdles that you would need to overcome or the things that you need to consider, because a good planning consultant should know sort of chapter and verse of the local planning policies position on conversions and new developments. Um, so they'll be able to guide you as to whether or not, yeah, you can actually go anywhere because some sites you just can't develop, even though it might have the right size or the right spec. Again, it depends council by council. So I would say if anyone you should definitely have a good relationship with, um, it would, and your first sort of, uh, your first point of port of call should be a good planning consultant after you've done your own uh, sort of due diligence and investigating. Mm. And that leads me to my next question, which is, Ooh. you know, when it comes to, to planning, yeah. how, like, how are you doing these conversions? Is it permitted development? Is it full planning? Like, talk us through... Yeah, it's a bit of a dark art, especially for those who haven't yeah. done it. Um, yeah. So yeah, talk me through that. Yeah. So, so far our conversions have all been full planning conversions. We haven't done any of the permitted development stuff because um, again, in Reading in particular, a lot of the low hanging fruit of the commercial to residential was just so hyper competitive. I mean, people were paying sometimes 50 to a hundred percent of the asking price and there were bidding wars and stuff. So we stayed out of that sort of insane, uh, brew of just people bidding for the sake of bidding kind of thing. All of our conversions and all of our new developments where they're, we're literally sort of creating, you know, building from the ground up kind of thing, um, our full planning applications, uh, some of that is because, um, again, so with, with the conversions, you know, there was no permitted development, so you have to get full planning applications. And then obviously with the new builds, we want to, we don't buy things that already have planning permission in place because we want to, um, to put our own sort of mark on it. We want to have control over the design, over the spec, over the density of the site. Um, and so do full planning applications on, on unpermit, you know, sites that previously haven't had planning permission. Um, like I said, for conversions, it's, it depends 
If it does fall within permitted development, then obviously it's a slightly easier or more straightforward process. Uh, but for full planning applications, you need to, like I said, have a really good team, a planning uh, consultant in particular, who knows not just the local planning policy, but how to make a compelling argument as to why your planning application ticks all of the right boxes, will you know, do all of the uh, thing, you know, sort of fulfill whatever housing requirements or help fulfill whatever housing requirements that local council has. Um, because if you think about it, you know, with full planning applications, you have to, it's, it's sort of like making a case, you know, like you would in a, in a, in a legal case, it's, it's not, adversarial in that sense, but it's more just like, this is my argument. This is how, based on what I know of the local area or what your planning uh, consultant knows of the, the local area, this is how what we are proposing to do will fit in with the character of the area, with the local housing policy, with you know whatever it is that that council really cares about. And I've hit on this theme a couple of times now about just getting smart. If you in earnest want to be a developer of any kind, whether it's conversions or new build developments, you really, really, really cannot spend enough time getting to understand what the local council of that area is like. You know, what are their bugbears? What are they really hot on? Do they want electric charging points? Do they care about parking or bike storage? I mean, these things sound mundane, but different councils and different councillors will really, really care about specific issues, but you need to be willing to put into the work to understand what those things are so that you can make sure you you know, hit all of the right notes in your application so it makes it a very easy yes for them to approve your application. So if there's one tip about conversions in the planning process, it's to really, really get smart about what your, your local planning committee and the local planning policy is committed to and how can you help them fulfill their needs because that's going to make them much more likely to say yes. Yeah, I love that. It's the classic, like, what's in it for me? And you need to mm -hmm. be thinking about what is in it for them. Um, exactly. And how to make it as smooth as possible for both of you. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Amazing. So is there, so coming on to our almost last questions here. Um, yeah, Is sure. there a, I don't know, a bit of technology like or a resource or an app or something that like you just can't live without? Oh, yikes. Um, this is. Actually, yes, actually, and it's a really simple one. Um, and this isn't necessarily specific to just development or conversions or or even property. But there's this great app that uh, my partner and I, my husband and I use called Wonderlist, which is Wonder spelled the German way, so W U N D E R List. So Wonderlist, and it's the most for us. It has been the easiest tool that we use in our business that we don't know how we lived without. So very basically, it's just a very easy to use list app. There's also a desktop version where you create a category, let's say, I don't know, you know, property on, you know, one, two, three main street, and then you can share that list with other people. So obviously my partner slash husband and I share all of our property related lists with each other. And then in each category, we can say, okay, well, one, two, three main street, you know, the gas safety certificate expires on this date. And then we set a recurring reminder as to when it needs to be renewed. Uh, or, you know, tenants have requested a new coat hanger or whatever it is, but anything related relating to that property, he and I can put in or anyone who's working with us can put in. And then the beauty is that you can then assign each item on that on that list to someone else. So I can, you know, we've got a, an amazing virtual assistant and he and I share a few different property related lists and I can just put something in and I can say, Okay, I assigned it to Alex, and then in the within the app, I can say, okay, Alex, here's you know what I've assigned you. Here are a couple of things I want you to cover, and then he, you know, he can respond within the app, you know, using the chat function if he wants to, um, and I can upload do supporting documents or photos or whatever. Everything that I need with related to that specific thing can go in Wonderlist, and then when he's done, he ticks it off. And then I get an alert that it's been completed. So it's just helped in so many big and small ways. First of all, to like avoid the clutter and craziness of emails going back and forth. Um, it's an elegant way of just keeping all things related to one property in one place. Um, and then again, this ability to assign tasks or to share lists is really, really invaluable. And you know, for those of you especially you know, if you're taking somebody on for the first time or you know you don't want to be micromanaging but you want to know when things are done the fact that you get an alert when something's been ticked off and done is great because then you don't need to chase and say hey by the way when did you do this or has this been done or whatever um 
But for me, the key about it is that it's so easy to use. I am not a technology person. Like if it, if it, if I can't figure it out within 10 minutes, I'm not going to use it. This has been one of the best apps I have ever, ever come across that is, it's very simple, but that's the beauty of it. It's just simple and elegant. And we found so many different ways to, uh, to use it and implement it in our business. Um, that, yeah, I don't know what we would have done without it. Wunderlist is amazing. Um, oh, you knew it too. Cool. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, awesome. You know what? I don't use it to the level you use it. Though. I use it literally as like a really basic, like to do list. However, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because it shows how deep the functionality is that you're using yeah. it. Like, so I would what you're doing with it. I would probably use Asana for just because I prefer yep. the That's, way it looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yep. it's so cool to think a to do list app can actually do what you're doing with it as well, which is a lot more yeah. than what I'm doing with it. So yeah. Yeah, great app there. So um, we're now on to the quick fire round. So, oh gosh, okay. Um, what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, do, do, do this. Oh, let me think about that. I guess the first one is not asking for help sooner. So by this, I mean uh, holding on to doing things that are low value or just irritate me or like I am not uniquely qualified to do on my own and just holding on to them a lot longer than I should have. A really silly, but <laughs> for me, a meaningful example is submitting meter readings to, uh, to the utility suppliers. So as all of you HMO uh, landlords out there know, when you've got, you know, you're paying for the utilities, you have to be the one to submit the utility uh, readings to you know each month or however often you do it without before the advent of smart meters right so I remember getting so frustrated about having to go every month taking photos of the utility uh, of each meter reading and then submitting it and blah 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 when I had people who could have helped me so now top tip if anyone wants to do it if they haven't already we have our cleaners send us photos of the meter readings because they go in every two weeks. So, you know, if they're already there, that can save me a trip. They take photos of the meter readings. And then I have my virtual assistant who I just forward those photos to have him log in and submit the meter readings. It's a small thing. People might think it's crazy. Why did you cause you so much stress? Because it is so small, but it's like just one more task to do. And I can sort of hear you chuckling in the background because it's true. Like all of these little things start to add up and you don't realize how much emotional energy they sap from you until you get rid of them. So that for me is not asking for help soon enough, but there are so many other examples on that side of things. Um, the second is, I guess, and this is just something about me and maybe entrepreneurs in general. It's just wanting things to be done yesterday. So I love, yeah, I see, I think you can probably resonate. And it's this idea of like, yes, you know, it's great to have that energy and that drive and that like, yeah, let's hurry up and get the stuff done and take over the world. But it's not, well, first of all, it's not really realistic that, that the world can be expected to operate on your time. Secondly, especially with property, you're relying on a lot of other people, on tenants, on agents, on, you know, contractors, whatever. You know, everybody doesn't move at the pace that, that we often do. But also, all good things, as they say, come to those who wait. And having patience is so, so key. And, you know, there's a great phrase that sums it up, I think, perfectly, is it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And most people want the overnight success, but not the 10 years of work. So, you know, again, one sort of mistake is just this, this almost impatience. You know, you can have energy, but just be patient. Things will take, sometimes will take longer. Um, and that's just how it goes. Um, and then I guess the third mistake is not systemizing sooner. So in the beginning, it was just me and my partner. We were doing everything ourselves from well at the first property very first property the refurbishment itself to then marketing advertising taking photos staging the property doing the viewings managing them you know all of that stuff and you know you don't i think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the in the podcast as well but like it's so much easier to systemize when you've got one property and then plug every other property into that system than it is when you're sort of 10 properties into your portfolio and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to go back and retroactively figure out how I'm going to make 
a sense of this crazy mess that I've made. So I would say for everybody listening, you cannot systemize soon enough, even if it is just one property. You know, again, that idea we talked about earlier of treating your business as a business from the beginning, systems come into it at some point. And it doesn't have to be tech. It doesn't have to be something fancy. It doesn't even have to be stuff you pay for. Like I said earlier, Wonderlist is probably one of the best systems we use in our business. Um, and, and it's free. The other thing is that a system or a process doesn't have to have anything other than like just put a bit of thought in it. So another big thing for us, like is this, that is a quote unquote system or process that has made a huge difference is that we batch activities. So this idea of letting a whole bunch of things, you know, build up and then batch when you actually execute them. So again, a, a great example that's made a huge difference in my life and in our business is I batch when I pay invoices. I pay invoices on the 15th and the 30th of the month. All of our trades know this. I know this. We communicate it so nobody's, you know, caught unawares. It means that no one ever has to wait more than two weeks to, to get their invoices paid. But it also means that I'm not constantly sort of, you know, always checking emails and then paying them immediately or worrying about when did this get paid or when will it get paid. It just takes some of the craziness out of your head and just creates a, a predictable process, a predictable schedule of when things can happen. So systemizing, like I said, biggest you know mistake we made was to wait as long as we did to do it. But when you do start doing it, it doesn't have to be a thing. It can just be a thought process or it can be a, a or it can be an Excel spreadsheet or a wonder list or something, but it can be simple. It just has to take some of the noise some of the memory, some of the anxiety around how you run your business. And there are so many elegant ways of doing that that doesn't have to cost you anything. Amazing. And what are your top three goals for the future? They can be personal, Ooh. fitness, travel, anything. Yeah. Um, personal goal, I want to be able to, I, I quite like my physical exercise. Um, I played football, so soccer slash uh, European football for most of my life until I was an adult. I don't play anymore, but I think physical activity is something that's so important to me. So one of my goals that I've set, uh, I'm hoping that, well, not hoping, I've set for next year uh, that I will do is to get to be able to do 10 chin-ups. I'm at five now, so I'm halfway there, but I think breaking that sort of barrier between five and six is going to be a tough one. So uh, yeah, so 10 chin-ups is a personal goal. Um, another, I guess, personal slash business goal uh, is that I want to publish a book. Uh, I've got so many book ideas. I love to write for anybody who's, you know, subscribed to my newsletter or my blog. You, I mean, you know how just prolific I am, but also how much I enjoy it. And so it's coming up with, you know, what is that one idea that I want to share with the world? Cause I've got so many, uh, so to publish a book and then sort of bucket list slash personal slash business fulfillment is also I want to do a TED talk in addition to doing a TED talk. So, I mean, they're not as good um, as this, but yeah, that's cool. That's cool. No, clearly not. No, no, no. But, you know, as a second, as second place, I'll, I'll settle for a TED talk too. Amazing. I love those yeah. goals. So, Uba, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think a lot of what you've said is noteworthy. So I think people will be pausing this podcast um, and taking notes and getting in touch Great. with you because there's a lot of value now, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way they can do it? Yes. I mean, I always am very responsive on email. So please just email me at rupal at blueinfinityproperty.com. Um, yeah, I will respond happily to, to anyone who you know sort of reaches out. And I guess the key thing there is that please, I love hearing from people. I love helping. I love sharing. Um, I'm happy to get in touch with anybody, but I want to make sure that people who reach out are actually going to do something with the knowledge I share or the questions I answer. So if that's you, please get in touch. I would love, love, love to hear from you. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to be mean, but action takers only, please. <laughs> I love that. Rupal, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure, Tej. Thank you for having me. And thank you to all of your listening listeners for, uh, for sharing this time with us. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.